All right. Uh, the best thing to do is to turn in this document, which is called God's Wrath in the Bible. I don't know that this is going to be the last time we deal with this because uh, I want to give another run at Revelation 14, <clears throat> and that will probably take up, just doing Revelation will probably take up next Sabbath. But uh, page 10 is where we stopped. We finished Romans, I believe it was. And for for those of you who listen online and for those of you who are here and haven't been coming regularly, I would like to do a little recap of uh, where we've been on this. If you go to the front of the document, we discussed anger for extensive Sabbaths in the Old Testament. As you know... God's wrath is major, major in the Old Testament. If you read the prophets, it seems like God is always angry. And it helps to understand what is going on, but it still is a bit scary to, to hear all these uh, statements about God's anger. What we noticed is that if we do a canonical reading, and the reason I uh, value a canonical reading of the Old Testament is that by the theological questions that are overarching, like why does God seem so angry in the Old Testament? So a major question being asked a lot today. Uh, the overriding questions like that are best answered by a canonical approach rather than, say, a historical approach. And I, I realize that many scholars use canonical criticism without uh, mitigating or weakening the use of uh, historical method. But I find that a canonical view in the finished form uh, really helps to uh, be able to compare Scripture with Scripture. And one of the things I've noticed in the canonical reading is that God is never angry once in Genesis. That's a very key, important point. This is the book of the beginnings. And in my reading of the Old Testament where I believe there's two voices, a major voice of God's adapted will to the will of the people and his minor voice, which is heard less frequently, which is his preferred will. Uh, the best example of that, just to reiterate, is that in First Samuel, where God doesn't really want Israel to have a king, that's his preferred voice, his minor voice, but people insist on having a king, so he says, okay, go ahead and have a king, and of course it's not good. Bad things happen because they have a king. So, what I look at is what is the beginning of things. The beginning of things is God's ideal will. And so Genesis, because it's tied to creation, the beginning before the fall, and we see God in the very beginning moments of human history, it doesn't say he's angry once, not even with the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, all those other places. The first canonical instance of God's anger is with Moses at the burning bush. And at the at the burning bush, uh, you remember that Moses finally says, Oh, Lord, after he's run out of arguments, of course, Oh, Lord, please send someone else. And God says, it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And what does God say when he gets angry? All right, have your way. <laughs> Isn't Aaron your brother coming? That's the first canonical instance. And it should tip us off to what God's wrath really is. And so as we move on, there are numerous passages where God's wrath in the Old Testament is is a, when he lets go things, when he gives them up 
gives people up. Uh, sometimes the metaphor used is he sells them into the hands of someone else. Well, God doesn't get much of a bargain by selling his people. Uh, so that's just a loose metaphor for letting go, letting them go to other peoples because they've uh, moved out of his area of control. Sometimes divine wrath is autonomous or metaphorical for consequences such as international strife. Then uh, sometimes it's metaphoric. It's used as a metaphor. And so we have to look at the context to see how it's used. So, so overall, in the Old Testament, I really believe that God's wrath is tied to simply giving people what they want or what they've chosen or letting go of the protection of them. And that is, when we get to the New Testament, that is really played out in Romans. And this is where we've been the last two Sabbaths. In Romans 1, 18, it says, Now the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who suppress the truth. And three times, that, that word revealed is very definitive there. It's, it's a definition word. It means that what is going to be shown next is the content or the definition of God's wrath. And three times in that passage it says, God gave them up. God gave them up. God gave them up. So I find this as a, I find this to be a definitive key statement. But those who have been with me through this study would know that one of the hermeneutics that we, principle, one of the hermeneutical principles that we established is that when we compare scripture with scripture, with it, which is the historic way Adventists studied the Bible, by the way, when we compare scripture with scripture, there are key passages that unlock the door for all other passages that explain them. And I find Romans 1, 18, 26, 24, 26, and 28 to be one of those key places. So now we've we've went through Romans the last time, and now we're ready to begin. But I'm going to start with a passage that isn't on this sheet. It's one I was looking at this week, and I felt like the Holy Spirit was just guiding me through it uh, in terms of God's wrath. Now, this passage doesn't mention God's wrath at all. But if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter, and... Uh, Jonathan, since you've been here and know the ropes well, why don't you read 13? I would like you to read verses 1, one through 3, and then uh, Evan can read verses uh, 4 to 8. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that I can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, there will, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there are knowledge, it will vanish away. Okay. Love never ends. Love never fails. 
Where do you find anger in there? It is there. Look at four to, verses four to six or seven. Actually, verses four to seven. It's not easily angered. It's not easily angered. You must have the uh, Common English Bible. Oh, NIV. It has the same translation as mine. Mine. Oh, I do have the NIV. Come to think of it, uh, <laughs> I I can easily switch <laughs> translations here. So, love is not easily angered. What What do you have? What do the rest of you have for that? I think Jonathan, you read, or or Evan, you read, is not easy. It is not provoked, right? It's not easily provoked. Okay. Uh, anybody have anything different? Okay, so that's that's anger. Love is not easily provoked. It's slow to anger, and I think Evan, you read long suffering or, or suffers long, and for love is patient, is what my version has. To suffer long is a little like slow to anger. Last week I suggested that the best antonym, that is opposite meaning. The best opposite meaning for anger in the Old Testament is patience or more actually slow to anger, as, as, which is a part of God's character. And by the way, that's one of the things we noticed in our Old Testament study is that anger is not an aspect of God's character. It's not rooted in who he is. It's more of the consequences of him having to let people go. So if we move through verses 4 to 7, we're in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verses 4 to 7. If if you're kind, are you going to get angry? Well, I was just thinking, like, you know when you see people that are, like, not very kind to someone, then you do kind of get kind of angry, don't you think? Like, if somebody's being... So if they're not, if they're not, yeah, you, you kind of get upset, um... Uh, what is your anger? What is the quality of your anger at that point? Justice. For justice, justice. get back at them for what they've done? I guess, yeah. Or you have compassion for the person. You might have compassion for the person who did the do- deed. No. <laughs> Not usually, right? Now, Jesus points out in Matthew, and, and we've, we've already looked at this, so we're not going to... Uh, I think we already looked at it. I think we did. I think I moved ahead into the chapter. But in Matthew 5, he talks about if you love other people because they love you, in other words, because they're lovable, what reward do you have? Do not the Gentiles do that? They love people who love them. It's only if you love your enemies that you have the love of the Father, that you can be called children of your Heavenly Father. Jesus makes a very strong point for that, that that we're not loving unless we love our enemies. So this kindness isn't just kind, I'm kind to you because you're kind to me, or I'm kind to you because you're suffering at someone else's hands. It is kindness that goes beyond that to the person who did the bad deed. Can you be angry at that person and be kind to them at the same time? Now, I I believe that... it isn't inappropriate to be upset over something that you see happening. 
but I'll, I, I've told this story before, and I'll tell it again. Um, there's one thing you don't do is abuse your dog in my presence, or any animal for that matter. And one time a neighbor uh, was abusing his dogs. They were Doberman pinchers. And uh, he was abusing his dogs in his yard. <laughs> I was in my yard, and I yelled at him to stop. And he told me off that you know, those were his dogs and he knew what they needed and I had no business telling him. And I said, uh, I can do what I want to them, he says. And I said, not in my presence. <laughs> <laughs> this this guy went home and, and uh, I don't know if it was that night or some subsequent night, he dreamed that he had to marry me. <laughs> <laughs> and it was and it was a nightmare. <laughs> it would have been for me too. <laughs> but you know, I I I probably didn't change him any by yelling at him. Uh, people who abuse other people usually do so because they have been abused themselves. And if they have been abused. The only hope of breaking that abuse sometimes is to show them kindness. So I would like to suggest that if we really love even those that we don't love, uh, we will be kind to them. Now that doesn't mean we might not take action if necessary. But we would do that action and we would do it for them as much as for the victim that they were mistreating love doesn't is not jealous it doesn't boast it's not proud a lot of our times our anger it comes out of our pride more because we're right and they're wrong that pride of being right and wrong is or right and they're wrong is is pretty deadly it does not dishonor others Ooh. what if we acted that out to people we get angry with we don't dishonor them it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It has to be pretty bad before you get that upset. It keeps no record of wrongs. How many... I, I'm not going to ask you that. Uh, <laughs> I will confess. I will make a confession. My name is Jean, and I hold grudges. LAUGHTER so keeping a record of wrongs is something I, it's most natural to me to do. And God has had to show me that that is just not the way to love people. You have to let it go. Uh, love does not delight in evil. That means we're not going to like it when someone abuses someone else. Okay, We're not going to like that. But neither does it delight when someone gets something back on them. It always protects it always trusts, it always hopes, always perseveres. That's, that's loaded. If we followed this, if we had this kind of love in our hearts, we would rarely, if ever, get angry in terms of an emotion. I wanted to start with that because I think it's important to look at the counter of anger, what, what the opposites are, what, and before we move into anger itself. Now let's go ahead and look at 2 Corinthians 12.20. The New Testament does not view anger with 
positive response. It's mostly negative. Uh, so, um, Tara, would you? For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. This is probably speaking not of of a studied reaction, but more of flying off the handle kind of thing, fits of rage. Uh, certainly that is inappropriate. Let's uh, look at Galatians 5.20. And Karen, would you read, please? You probably should start with verse 19, and I would like you to read through verse 23. Okay, 19 to 23. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Uh, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Okay, so we have these, this contrast here. These are the, th- the acts of the flesh or, or our sinful nature. And again, fits of rage and so on. And notice the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Self-control is another opposite, probably the New Testament opposite of anger. If you have all that fruit, it's going to be very hard to get angry. Okay, let's go to, to Ephesians 2, 3, and 4. There's quite a few places in Ephesians. Okay, Sophia, would you read please verses 1 to 3? Uh, Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Your NIV is is either more recent than mine, or mine's more recent than yours. I have... Deserving of wrath instead of objects of wrath. Uh, what do you have there, Evan? Um, children of wrath. Children of wrath. That's what it says in the Greek. Children of wrath. That's a little more ambiguous. And uh, one, one of the pieces I didn't go over in, in uh, reiterating what we've done before is in Romans 2, uh, Paul makes it quite clear that when we reject the goodness of God, which is meant to lead us to repentance, when we do that, we store up wrath. If you reject goodness, you become angry quite easily. Uh, and we store up wrath in ourselves. The Greek can read in ourselves for the day of wrath. And I think that's what Paul means by children of wrath. Not that we deserve wrath, 
but that we become filled with wrath. The term children of something is used in the Old Testament. And keep in mind, Paul is a Jew who knows the Hebrew Bible very well. And this term is used to designate Israelites, the sons of Israel or the children of Israel. It's used to de- to determine a profession such as a a son of a uh, occupation is someone who works at that occupation. It's even used for a numerical counting your age, son of ninety years. <laughs> uh, it's kind of a peculiar way of stating it in Hebrew, but but that's the way it's stated. So, children of wrath doesn't necessarily mean the wrath is outside of you coming towards you, but the wrath is internal. It's part of you. Sort of like identity. Yeah, it's going to, yeah, it's your identity. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So, that's why I have here, by nature, children of wrath, born angry or born under God's wrath. I think we're born angry. I think when we're born, God is desperately seeking to win us to Him. He's not, He's not shoving us away, well, you're just sinful and I'm not, if you come to me, maybe I'll save you, but that's not the way God is. He's out to, to find us, to get us to come back. And we're the ones born angry. Okay, uh, now we come to some that are very interesting that have to do with our anger, and that's Ephesians 4, 26. Okay, uh, let's see, 26 to 31. Would you read that for us, please? Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. Thieves must give up stealing. Rather, let them labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up, as there is need, so that your words may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with which you are marked with a seal for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all malice. Go ahead and read verse 32. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. So there you have it. If you're going to get angry, don't sin while you're angry. And what does that mean? How do you get angry and not sin? Well, it's, it's, it, I think it's a human reaction to be angry temporarily and then work through it. So I think what Paul is saying here is, Work through your anger quickly to come to love the person you're angry with. Okay? As fast as you can. So in anger, do not sin. Don't let it determine how you behave, as another way of putting it. And do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So the anger can only last for one day <laughs> uh, if you're not going to sin. Do not give the devil a foothold. And then if you go to verse 32, the ideal minor voice, which in the New Testament really is major, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. And the contrast to that is be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other as in God, Christ, and as in Christ God forgave you. So, all bitterness, get rid of it. All bitterness, rage, and anger. Now, does this mean that we shouldn't be angry, but God can? That's how many people look at God. You know, if, 
we have to, we can be, we can't be angry and we can't retaliate against other people for what they do to us, but God can. Now there is a text, let's see, did I leave that one out? I guess I did. Uh, does anybody remember the verse that get, leave to the wrath of God? Romans 12. Oh, maybe we passed it already then. I was just looking at that. <laughs> uh, Roman, is it Romans 12, 19? Um, it's something like that, yeah, 19 or 20. Because we did look at that last week, but let's look at it again. Yeah, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. The question is, how does God repay? Doesn't earlier in the book, in the same book, Paul says the wrath of God is allowing the consequences? Yeah, that's how he repays. He lets people suffer the consequences of their choice. Okay? How God treats people who are his enemies is what? While we are his enemies, Christ died for the ungodly. That's how God treats his enemies. He dies for them. Uh, Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 5, uh, that God sends rain and sunshine on the just and on the unjust alike. So God does not vent his spleen and wreak his vengeance on the wicked, on his enemies. On the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. That's sending rain and, ju- and sunshine on the, on the ungodly. Uh, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So God does that, and we're to do that. By the way, Paul is quoting from Proverbs there. That's a proverb in Proverbs. Okay, um, so it, it seems to me that the way God retaliates really is the first thing he does is try to win the person with kindness. And if they resist kindness and, and completely move beyond God's realm of protection, he has to let them go. And then they suffer the consequences. And, and by the way, I believe that when the wicked destroy themselves, it is not a pleasant thing. I don't believe it's uh, that God just rocks them gently to sleep and, <laughs> and <laughs> that's all they suffer. I believe they suffer the contents of their mind, the, all the wrath they've stored up, all the all the anger, all the bitterness, all the pride, all the all the evil, malice that they've done to other people. They experience the results of that themselves. I don't think it's a pretty picture. But uh, verse 21 here in Romans 12, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So don't repay. And God doesn't repay back in kind. He does, he tries to overcome evil with good. And only if that's resisted does he let them go. Okay. I, let's run through some of these quickly. I, what time is it? I think we're running out of 12 o'clock. Okay, so we need to wrap up here. Ephesians 6, 4. Don't provoke your children to wrath, fathers. There's something to be said for not causing people to get angry, not doing something to make them angry. Now, of course, if you're dealing with someone who's abusive, uh, they're going to get angry at anything you do. <laughs> 
and there's no way to control that. So that this does not cover that. First Thessalonians 1.10 talks about Jesus who delivered us from the wrath to come. Notice it's not the wrath of God. This is in keeping with Paul often talks about wrath almost on as autonomous, uh, as something that stands by itself. Uh, he does not use the word God as much as the translations propose, especially the NIV. First uh, Thessalonians 2.16 talks about wrath coming upon the wicked. And it's just, it's not the wrath of God, even if your translations say so. In the Greek, it's just the wrath, or for wrath has come upon them. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. Uh, let's look at that one quickly. And uh, I forget your name, sorry. Diana. Diana, would you please read that verse? For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not born under God's wrath. That, going back to that previous verse that we read, we're not born under God's wrath. He didn't appoint us to wrath, but to redemption. Now, the next few verses, First uh, Timothy 2.8, uh, Paul enjoins the leaders of the church to lift up, raise holy hands. I think it's actually the men in the church. He says, lift up holy hands without wrath. And I, I have to note, many theologians believe that God's holiness is manifested by his displeasure, anger, and the exercise of retributive justice. But that's not how I read the Bible. The holiness in the Bible is anti-destruction, anti-anger, anti-all uh, those qualities. And in Titus 1.7, a bishop must not be quick-tempered. James 1, I'm skipping over Hebrews, we'll end with Hebrews. James 1.19, be slow to speak, slow to wrath. Verse, at verse 20, anger does not produce God's righteousness. So the New Testament is pretty negative toward anger. Uh, but let's end with uh, Hebrews 3. It's a good place to end on for today. Hebrews 3.11 and uh, Stephanie, verse 7, verses 7 to 11. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation, and said, They also go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, you remember that story? This is referring to when they came to Kadesh Barnea in the wilderness and they elected not to go into the promised land. So God said, you won't go in. Basically, when he gets angry, he gives them their choice. Now, of course, they reneged on their choice. They wanted to go in, but they went without God. And the results were disastrous. But this this verse uh, actually upholds the Romans 1 perception of God's wrath as giving people what they want, giving them uh, over to their choices. Any questions or comments before we close? I'm sorry to push a little bit fast at the end there. Did Jesus ever show? Anger? Um, we, we looked at Mark 3 where it says he looked at them in anger and the next verse says, or the next word says grieved at their hardness of heart. 
So the nature of his wrath is grief. And that fits with the, the story of the flood where God says God it grieved him to his heart. Any other questions or comments? So, so if we're born with this bad anger, like this bad wrath, you know, that isn't uh, from God, then it seems like pretty impossible to get out of it, like if it's in our nature. So I guess that would be a cool thing to maybe look at, like how to get out of it. How do you, how to get out of anger? Yeah. To me, and, and this is not, this is no stereotypical way this happens, okay? To me, it's when the love of God, when I realize fully that God loves me, and I bask in that love, God's love in me is going to automatically evoke love for other people. And as, he, as I keep drinking in His love for me, so that I love other people, it washes out all that anger at other people, all the grudges that I've held. And it's a long journey. It's, it's, let me talk about someone who's hold, held, holds grudges. It's a long journey. But it's, I have experienced it because, and basically, it, one, one thing that has helped me a lot, and I've pointed this out before, uh, in this venue, I, we have a choice when someone hurts us or hurts someone else in our presence. We have a choice of either becoming more like them by getting back at them, or we have a choice to not to choose not to be like them and to love them. And that's not something we can do on our own. I, I remember a night when I literally tried to find in the Bible a loophole that would get me off the hook of having to forgive a cousin who had very badly abused me. He stalked me. <laughs> and I I tried everything, every verse, and, and I wound up in Matthew 5, <laughs> love your enemies. I was like, okay, God, I, I surrender. I have to forgive him. But it's it's not going to happen unless you help me. Please help me to forgive him. And it was like God took this person that I had kind of magnified in my mind because that's what we do. We use what people do against us and magnify it, and we intensify what it do, the damage it does to ourselves. Um, and I, it was like God took this monster I had created in my head, which wasn't not my cousin, and he reduced him to a very small size put arms of fire around him and in my imagination and he said he is my child and i love him and through the eyes of god i was able to forgive him and what i learned i had a lot of fear of this man what i learned is that perfect love casts out fear when i forgave him i lost my fear of him um, and, and that is, that, by the way, fear is what fuels our anger. Because we're afraid of getting hurt again and again. So, um, that's, that's a short, short, uh, statement maybe on, on how to start that journey. Let's have a quick prayer. God, when we look at how you treat those who have hated you, despise you, and crucified you, and you forgave them while they were doing it. We are in awe. And all we can ask is that you love us 
and enable us to receive your love for us in our hearts so that we can love you and love others. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' name.